My name is. This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef Wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Tina Nguyen, I am the author of The Maga Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. Uh, currently, I am a national correspondent and founding partner at Puck. Uh, before that, I was at Politico, Vanity Fair, and The Daily Caller with Tucker Carlson. A um, lot of interesting things in between all of those stations of my life. And that's why I wrote a book about it. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Tina, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And first of all, congratulations on putting this out. It's an in-depth account of uh, you know your experience in this uh, MAGA world. And to me, this takes a lot of courage because you know to write about this would be scary to me. And I was wondering, when I was reading the book, did did you ever worry about your your sort of your safety sort of post uh, after the book coming out? I did. Um, obviously, it's a really big concern for me, but I've been living in this state of constant paranoia about right wing creepy people for 14 years at this point. And I think I like, did you ever watch Succession? I, I started the first episode. I just couldn't get through it. Oh, um, there's a section in which someone dies and one of the characters has been waiting for this death for a very long time. And he's like, well, yeah, I feel like I've like pre-grieved. It's very sad that he's died and all, but I pre-grieved. And I feel sort of like that right now where like, I've been worried about like internet stalkers and people finding my address and coming after me for like ages. But if you always prepare in advance for every terrible possibility out there and like get information and know exactly how people act, it's not that scary when it actually happens because you know that it's going to be like, it's going to be something you're confronted with. Um, and uh, here's how good I prep, I plan on preparing for things. Uh, and I go into this really in depth in the book. Um, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty aware that there might be violence at the Capitol on January 6th. But instead of going like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. I like, war, I um, game plan this out with a friend of mine who was a war correspondent. And he was like, all right, I've covered civil unrest before in the past. What you need to do is like, Keep an eye out on law enforcement. Keep an eye out on like internet chatter. Keep a, uh, keep like an eye on the mood of the crowd at any given moment. Know when they're probably going to get violent. Know when you can probably calm down. Know when it's good to identify yourself as press and know when it is safe, when it would actually make you less safe. So the moment that thing started going south, I was like, all right, I'm not going to freak out right now. I, I am here to report but all of the knowledge I have in the back and all of the preparation I have is kicking in. 
So there is like weird threats and pushback from the right right now, but it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because one, I like approached this book very carefully and tried to keep it as factual and straightforward as possible instead of going like, oh my God, everyone was a Nazi. Um, but I mean, there are actual white nationalists and Nazis in the book, some of whom I knew very well in the past. But if you go into it going like, this person is definitely a Nazi and a white nationalist, and I can say this is why they are, versus this person is kind of questionable, I am not going to go as far as to say they are a white nationalist, but I am going to like really go in depth about defining what their views are. Um, then people don't get really mad. So the only people who are mad at me right now are the actual white nationalists <laughs> who have conspiracy theories about me being like an Israeli spy. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm on a Vietnamese podcast right now, so. Yes, it's me, a shill for the Jews on the Vietnamese podcast. So, Tina, you know, I, I was going to ask you this much later in the interview, but since you brought it up the January 6th day, you saw flags of the Vietnamese uh, South Republican uh, government. Um, I'm sure that must have made you feel some sort of way. Can you tell me about, you know, that experience? Mm, yeah, I. Uh, that was... A little, that was really odd. Um, I had known in advance that there is a big uh, disinfo issue with like older Vietnamese refugees from like who remember the fall of Saigon and who actually like fled. And in the months leading up to it, I started getting all this information about Vietnamese American Trump voters who really, really liked Trump. Um, and targeted disinfo campaigns aimed at this population through Facebook and online media. And the very clever insight that whoever made this came up with that like Vietnamese language media just does not exist um, in like a mainstream context. It is like fairly partisan. And so leading up into this event, I kind of had the idea like circulating in my mind of like, okay, yeah, there's a big segment of the Vietnamese population that believes that Biden is a puppet of the Chinese Communist Party, that Hunter is like corrupt and evil. I don't know exactly how mad they're going to be about this, though. And the fact that they had mobilized and come to this event from as far away as Texas and like Washington State. Like they had gotten on those convoys somehow or someone had organized a convoy and brought right. them there was like really messed up. Um, so the translation between like, I am Vietnamese and believe this thing to I am Vietnamese and I will actually show up to the Capitol on January 6th was like mind blowing to me. And I don't know how that happened. I honestly don't. But um, yeah, wherever willpower there was to get the South Vietnamese flag to the Capitol as that symbol of like, here's how bad the country, like here's how bad the country got when communism took over. And here's our symbol of resistance against whatever's happening at the Capitol. There's a big um, it, it was a huge disconnect. And I think that element is really underappreciated um, when you talk about 
And I really apologize for explaining my industry like this because it's a loaded term that ha that is like really pushed by right-wing media, elite mainstream media. Like they, that entire narrative, that entire storyline just completely like, they lost it completely because they just did not know about it. They were just like, oh no, everyone here's a white nationalist. I'm like, guys, look at that. <laughs> They're not all white nationalists. Some of them are like South Vietnamese nationalists, but that's very different. This episode is brought to you by Red Boat Fish Sauce. I love cooking with Red Boat because it's made with only two ingredients, wild-caught anchovies and sea salt. This premium fish sauce is made in Phu Quoc, Vietnam and bottled right here in California. You can find Red Boat at select Asian supermarkets like 99 Ranch, H Mart, and Tong Fac. Your, uh, your answer opens up so many questions in my mind, but I want to go back to your mother um, mm -hmm. because your mother went to Harvard and she got a PhD in education at Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. Now, from where she was in sort of your mind's position uh, politically, that's probably very far from what you saw on January 6th, the, the Vietnamese that showed up there uh, politically and, and how far, how, how much, how educated she was. So when uh -huh. you think about the Vietnamese community sort of like leaning really into the MAGA movement, how far of a distance is that in your mind from where your mother was to today where the Vietnamese community that showed up on January 6th, is that like a huge space in your mind? I don't know, honestly, because my mother died way before January 6th. Uh, she actually passed away from cancer in 2017. So right at the very beginning of the Trump administration, uh, before the entire um, fake news media trend started kicking up. And within my own family, there was a really big split between um, people who were vote who were pro-Trump and people who were pro-Biden during that time. Then there's like what, a couple of relatives who did go full blast MAGA. And I think there's a difference between I'm voting for Trump because I am afraid of X, Y, Z to um, and like gra problems grounded in reality. Like my taxes are higher and I don't like how the Democrats want to approach COVID versus the Democrats are shutting the border down because there's a plot to put microchips in the vaccines and Mark Zuckerberg is a tool of the Chinese communist government and oh my God, like the vaccines making us infertile. Uh, and also January 6th, we have to go to the Capitol to like stop America from tyranny. Uh, I don't think my mom would have gotten that far down the rabbit hole, though she would have probably been like very sus of Biden links to China. Um, but she would not have been on the Capitol on January 6th, I think. Um, and I don't think a lot of my relatives, save for maybe one or two, would have. But I do know so many Vietnamese um, people my age who will tell me that may, they know at least maybe one person in their extended family who was probably in Washington on January 6th. Right. You know, Tina, the uh, majority of my friends and my contacts that are Vietnamese sort of like uh, at my age, I'm a little bit, probably a little older than you, but the folks that are like my age and younger 
predominantly my my circles have been progressive Vietnamese, younger liberals that you know out here in California. We're but and and I'm fascinated to 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 understand what led you down uh, the journey uh, into the world of you know conservative politics and covering it. Conser entering conservatism was sort of a casual wander into that world for me. Um, and in the book, I can, I really detail it, but I think the truncated better for podcast version is it was 2009. I had a really big libertarian moment because Ron Paul's um, politics started coming into fashion. And when you're 19 and your understanding of the world is kind of limited and this guy comes along going like, hey, what if everything could be determined with rational self-interest and all of the people in power are like actually trying to screw you both on the Republican and Democrat side, here's like a way out. I was like, huh, that's interesting. I'm kind of going to like follow along with this for a bit. Uh, the difference though between having that libertarian phase, which I think so many kids do, and me understanding and entering the world of conservative politics is I ended up going to a school that is a notorious breeding ground for people who become professional right-wingers. So um, Claremont McKenna, the school as it currently stands, is not like that. Um, at least the student body isn't, but it has this long history of conservative academia and a link to this group called the Claremont Institute. And it's more of a casual do this thing and like come over to this event and hey, there's this cool internship you can apply to um, that like, if you're like a liberty minded student who wants a career in journalism, you should apply for this uh, internship and you'll get a paid journalism job for the summer. Isn't that great? It's 2009 and I'm like, oh, Actually, yes, I do love liberty and I do want a career in journalism and I don't have money to do it for free. So, yeah, a paid internship sounds awesome. Uh, then you get this position. Then you, But the stipulation with the internship is now you have to attend a seminar for four days with a whole bunch of the other kids. And it's called Journalism in the Free Society. And you're like, I will remember this forever. They literally sent you like a packet of reading materials and a big packing list of like things to bring with you. Like it's going to get chilly at night. Maybe you should bring a camera because you're going to make so many memories with your new friends. By the way, why does the media cover um, the Affordable Care Act so weirdly? Why are they in the tank for it? Shouldn't someone from the other side like point out how bad it is? So... um <laughs> Yeah. And when I look back on it, I'm like, wait a second, this wasn't just like a nice little camp. This was an actual like proving ground for whether they had picked really good students to be proper conservative journalists. And then they identify the people from that cohort after the internship who seemed like the most diehard, committed people to um, the cause who were talented. And at that point, they started inviting me to things like um training camps for giving television interviews. There was a guy who was my official program mentor who was literally looking over my resume and telling me where to apply and being like, all right, here's how you enter this conversation with this person who's about to interview you. And I'm just there going like, la la la, this is great. I can't believe I have a mentor. Now I'm gonna get somewhere in my life. 
Um, but then all of the stations he started landing me in were sketchier and sketchier and sketchier. And at a certain point, I found myself with a, like, working for this guy who was literally asking me to write stories about Democrats um, and being like, these Democrats have like done these, like, horrible, unethical things that I look into. It. And I'm like, but so has the Republican <laughs> in the same state. Why are you only focused on the Democrat? Yeah. And when he started telling me that, like, oh, it's because the it's because the, no one talks about the Democrat and everyone only talks about the Republican, we have to hit the Democrat. And I'm like, I'm gonna look you up. Oh, Jesus, you've never had a job in journalism in your life. You used to work for the Koch brothers. I'm out. I can't do this. It was like, like people keep asking me the moment I left the movement. And it was the moment I realized that the movement was trying to turn me into a person who was deliberately not telling the truth as a journalist. And it wasn't just like, oh, I found myself taking up this job. It was this person who I trusted as my mentor was deliberately giving me all of these shit jobs because he was like, oh, these people are allies of ours. That was the term he used. And like the more that he kept doing that, the more I was like, I just there's something very deeply wrong here. I'm out. Now, the entire time you are sort of at Claremont and you're you're going to this camp and you're existing in this world, I kept imagining that you are the the only Vietnamese woman, you know, person of color in this tribe of probably predominantly white guys who are believing in this sort of way. Did it ever occur to you that their views and who you are might be very different or the, 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 I can't imagine like the jokes or the, uh -huh. you know, when you're bonding with people, they, they get comfortable and they say certain things. And it's just like, wait, that, that doesn't make, that doesn't make me feel good or feel in the right place. Did that ever go through your mind? I, well, it's definitely gotten more heated ever since I left in 2012 when I was younger when I was younger, the appeal of that like early libertarian movement was that like it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your gender, like the rules of liberty can like the rights of man and liberty apply to everybody. Um, and I think pretty much everyone in that seminar who was with me believed that at the time as well. But there were people there who were a bit more extreme in their like views of what liberty was and who had the right to access it. And uh, that's, I think, where you start getting very specific into people's beliefs. Because if you're just like, oh, yeah, everyone here was like, we hate minorities, blah, blah, blah. That's like pretty simplistic and kind of ignores exactly how well these beliefs, like actual not like white nationalist beliefs can like mainstream themselves because they like go very deep under the radar and they sort of like package themselves in a in a like more respectable veneer and uh this is how deep the racism inside this movement can be without me noticing it the mentor who i was discussing earlier like years and years later it was revealed that he had run this um email um private email chain called morning hate and it was him and a whole bunch of conservative journalists who were secretly white nationalists and we're not talking like oh yeah they have like weird pants dances against um the like um 
it wasn't like, oh, they have a weird stance against affirmative action. It was like, let's come up with crazy names for minorities that are hateful. Kyle Hitler. Hitler was great. Why can't we go back to Hitler times? And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You were there. You were secretly orchestrating this group to slip white nationalist ideas into conservative journalism, which like, if they had known you were doing this, they would have fired your ass immediately, which they did when the thing came out. But they were like, all right, we need to use the commons of the internet, which is like ungovernable and no one can tell us no and needs to be filled up with content so people can click it and get their eyeballs on it. And so the people who run the companies can get ad revenue. But this is a great opportunity for us to like push everything out that we want in like a very understated manner. And when I learned that my mentor had been in the center of this, I was like, oh my God, you had believed like you had thought like this for the entire time you and I knew each other. And you just never let that on in front of me because you couldn't, because that would have like given up the entire game. And I would have like sniffed you out immediately. Like it is a very deep hidden impulse. And I just didn't know. And I just didn't know it until it was way too late. This is your mentor, John Elliott, right? Yes. The literal program appointed mentor that uh, I mentioned, I brought up earlier. Yeah. Now, when you look back on that and you think about the sort of the signs of, you know, or not the signs, but uh, did you did you kick yourself in the butt going, how could I not have seen that? I mean, is it mm. is it that well hidden? The 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 intentions of guys like that, is it are they that good where you know you just can't see it? Now I think the next generation is a little bit more open with it, which is a little disturbing, but we can get to that later. Um <laughs> the back then. Certainly back then, they were much better at hiding what it is they wanted to actually do. And um, the way that I describe the world of conservatism is less that like there is a secret, like there is a plan and a set, set of marching orders and everyone is in full agreement that you're going to do one thing in order to make America great again. It's this really loose network of that's been around since the 1960s and it's moneyed and full of people who've made their careers as professional conservatives. And it's a bunch of people going like, Hey, I know you because you worked at that thing that I've heard of that I had a friend work at or like, Oh yeah. Don't you know? So-and-so we went to this thing together. Oh, okay. I trust you. And it's more like the Ivy league in that way where like, there is a network of credentialed people who kind of float around in the same circles and you kind of do favors for each other. And that's how all of a sudden you find that your friend that knows that guy, that you'll find that you have suddenly like one or two degrees of separation from a secret white nationalist um, training camp <laughs> or whatever. And maybe that gives a little bit too much credit to the general world of like being a Republican and being a conservative and like, keep in mind, I find this a very different, it's a very different entity I'm talking about here rather than like Republican voters or evangelical right. voters. Like there is an entire cottage industry 
that exists specifically to like push the culture wars in this direction and government and like the law and like basically any sort of civic institution you can get your hands on. There is some right wing group who knows everyone else in the other right wing groups that's trying to do something about it. This episode is brought to you by Somkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Somkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Somkai gin. Somkai gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Somkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Somkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Somkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. You know, this is traditionally how I've seen the machines on the Republican side and the Democrat side. I feel like the Republicans, just from my, I, I, I wouldn't claim to, to know much about politics, but what when I look at it, it just seems like the Republicans are just so much, it's such a, a well-oiled machine and that they're sort of like they're growing their uh, their young people to think about organizing and and taking a particular path very early. And the Democrats are kind of loosey goosey. It doesn't seem to be as organized. But when it comes out, it just seems that um, that the American politics are always voting uh, balance uh, from decade to decade. It's never like Republican all the way, but yet it's such a well, well-oiled machine. How is the political balance of power constantly happening after all these uh, hundreds of years where there's, you know, the Republicans will take office for, for a bit and then the Democrats will take, it's like fairly balanced, but mm-hmm. the Republican machine is much more organized as you documented in your book. Yeah, it's because Congress has ceded most of its powers to the executive branch. You can now do whatever, whenever, depending on which president is in office. Um, I know this is really technical, but the ability for the president to do whatever he wants because of executive action and the executive power and privilege has just like grown so much over the past century. And Like, oh, like Trump has abused this power. Obama has abused this power. Clinton has abused this power. And like Congress is, Congress can like control the power of the purse and like who can, and like how much money can or cannot be spent. But ultimately when it comes to like, here's the direction the country is going, the mood is either like, which president is making this so? Um, So that's like, and that's the national um, mood of it as well. Like, is the party and is the president in power a Democrat or a Republican? And if so, what, like, how has my life fared under the past like X years um, with this president in power? Weirdly enough, like, if you go back through history, the overwhelming trend during midterm elections is that, like, People get dissatisfied with the president in charge for like some amount of reason. 
and will start voting for members of Congress who are in the other party. So those guys suddenly get a majority. Um, this year was an anomaly because Trump was so heavily involved in the 2022 midterms that like, even though Biden oversaw an economy that like sucked um, and was still like dealing with the, uh, with the aftermath of COVID and those regulations were weird and patchwork and kind of like upsetting to a lot of voters. Trump being there and pushing all of this crazy conspiracy um, denying rhetoric was so um, unacceptable to voters that the Republicans who thought they were going to have like a 30 seat majority suddenly ended up with like a five seat majority. And that's why Congress right now is in such a chaotic state of like, we don't have a speaker. Like we might not have a speaker by next month uh, just because there aren't even enough, there aren't enough conservatives or GOP members to protect that speaker. Um, all of this to say that the balance that you see in the electorate really has nothing to do with the um, like who has power in the federal government. The people who are voting, uh, the people who are voting elected officials into office, just kind of go on the mood based on what tone the president is setting. Got it. After writing mm -hmm. this book. Do, is there any silver linings to the MAGA movement? Silver linings? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah. Here's something that I really want to make sure people come away with this book understanding. Is that like the conservative movement, as I depicted it, really got taken over by the MAGA movement. But that is also because the conservative movement, is, the one I grew up in, was very like, insular and like oh you have to be a smart person to get in and then you're going to be reading all of these texts about how the economy should be and how human rights should be organized and this is a thing we have believed since the 1960s and this is what conservatism is uh trump came in from the outside and went actually i want to do populism and then a huge percentage of the voters who used to be like the conservative base tea party guys were like actually we want populism too. The Democrats aren't going to give it to us. And here's the guy on the Republican side who is going to give us populism. We want him. And the movement suddenly goes like, oh, we didn't anticipate this. Yeah. But they were absolutely powerless to stop it. And so now that the barbarians are inside the gate, that's like, as I put it, the movement, this very powerful network is suddenly like, oh gosh, what do we do in order to maintain power? Like, do we go along with this? Do we try fighting it? Um, if we try fighting it, then are we going to be seen as disloyal? And not like, and I just don't say that as a marketing overall sense. Like I have seen people absolutely lose every fit, like every family member, every friend yeah. they've ever made, their careers, their livelihoods, like the thing that they had lived for since they were 19, the moment they said, like, the moment they said Trump's bad, we oppose this guy wholeheartedly, like, it is like the world falls out from underneath them. And that's a terrifying proposition for anyone who doesn't have the ability to survive that. What does the future of our democracy look like to you? Mm. Oh, that's always the 
that's always a tough question to answer. Um, I think it can be very strong, but the question ultimately is like, the oh, going back to my last question, the point I think I wanted to come across with is that like, populism and resentment against government and the control of the federal government particularly needs to be addressed because otherwise the option is all right if we don't feel like our needs are being met what do we do about the government how do we push back again like what is the degree to which you feel safe rebelling and if our elected officials do not find a way to meaningfully address what is like what voters are feeling, uh, I cannot imagine good things will happen from it. And I'm not just saying this because I think, oh, every elected official is kind of living in a bubble, though, like I do kind of believe that. It's that the information environment to which um, politicians and elected officials can communicate with voters is getting so messed up. Yeah. Like there are no longer just one or two publication shows that you go on in order to make a point. It's like millions and millions of little podcasts and internet streaming services and sites and, and uh, it, way more cable news channels. Tucker Carlson has probably more influence than ever because he's no longer on Fox, wherein, whereas like in the past you would have thought differently. So it's like hard to reach every voter. And that's like a gargantuan task in any administration or for any person. Um, but those are the stakes. And um, I think that's where I'm just going to lay them out and leave them. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? For me, I don't... As a Vietnamese person in America? Yeah. I don't know, maybe I... It's a hard question for me to answer because Look, I'm, my mom died and like I have a giant Vietnamese American family and I have like a pretty decent Vietnamese American community in um, Virginia. I'm not really a giant, like a big member of it. Um, but just like my own tangible connection to being Vietnamese has been like severed. And the fact that I only get to really feel Vietnamese whenever I'm with my aunts or with my cousins, which only happens like twice a year now, is like a very tragic thing. So whenever I do, whenever I like, whenever I do feel Vietnamese, it is like this wonderful sense of like family and survival and like being able to thrive under conditions that should have like crushed other people. And whenever I'm not around them, I'm just sort of like, I guess I'm a journalist off in the world. So, yeah, I really miss that. Yeah. Have you been to Vietnam? Once when I was younger. Yeah. I would like to, I would, I would like to go back, but um, 
I don't really speak that much Vietnamese. So I feel a little bit like lost wandering around. And I've tried learning Vietnamese once and uh, it didn't take. Yeah. There are pretty big differences, I think, between people, young people on the East Coast and the West Coast as it relates to politics and involvement in mm -hmm. politics. And there's a difference between East Coast Vietnamese, West Coast Vietnamese. There's all these differences. Do you recognize these things, spending so much time on both coasts? Oh, yeah. Um, Can you talk about that? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, there's just like a very, very small Vietnamese American community on the East Coast. And like you can find them, uh, but it's not as like, blazingly obvious as it is when you go to like Houston or San Diego where a lot of my family lives and I think when you just like go to the west coast and you just fall into and you like enter Orange County and you're like ah oh, my people all right it's everywhere around me I have such a more I have a tangible sense of who I am and then when you're in the east coast and you're Vietnamese you're like oh, okay, I got to go find the Vietnamese products in the end of the, like, Chinese supermarket, and we have to go past all of the Japanese stuff to get there. It is, like, very, like, Asian-American monoculture that you kind of find yourself as a little tiny part of, but, like, the idea of, like, a South Vietnamese identity or nationalism wasn't particularly strong on the East Coast until you get to places that have larger communities, like Falls Church or... Um, yeah, false church. Yeah. I want to end this um, episode with talking about how important it is for, I think for me, Vietnamese people to read your book because there exists so much uh, crossover with young and old and, and male and female uh, in the Vietnamese world, uh, both in, in, in on the East Coast, West Coast, but so we can get a better understanding of what nuanced conversation is like, um, you know, I, I identify mm -hmm. more liberal, more progressive, but reading this book gave me an insight to, to think that in the world of conservative politics, it's not as black and white as we on the other side often think. And so it was, I was delighted to read the book and to learn so much more about the history of sort of how this all became the, the MAGA movement all, all came to light. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the uh, process of writing the book or the like overall history of it? No, the, the, uh, the reasons why we should read it in the Vietnamese community. Oh, you, yes. You know. Yeah. Oh, man. I think that, and this happens to pretty much everyone, not just to the Vietnamese community but like shifts in power and things that happen in Washington and policies that just like come out of nowhere don't actually come out of nowhere and things that seem really scary happening on a high governmental level have like a lot of history behind them a lot of people who are trying to make this re thing a reality um and I think pulling back the curtain on what on like how this stuff happens is much better than being caught completely by surprise by like a giant shift, like a, a tectonic shift that seems to come out of nowhere. Like that's always how I've managed to stay sane during covering the Trump administration because I'm like, 
whenever something wild and crazy happens, I've always been like, oh, that's what that thing that they did like 10 years ago led up to rather than like, oh my God, where I didn't see any of this coming. Oh, wow, everything's falling out from underneath my feet. And uh, I just wanted to give people that sense of like, okay, no, everything actually does make more sense if you understand it at this level. Uh, my favorite part of the book, and this is something I actually urge people to find, is I have a series of extensive endnotes that explain every single random organization that I bring up in the book or every like bizarre um, theory or thinker or like institution that plays a role in my journey. The thing is, if I threw them in, I tried doing it as like something in the middle of the text and to explain like, okay, yeah, here's like whatever. And then my editor's note back to me was, this is derailing the narrative of the book. Please take this out. And I'm, and I'm like, wait, no, you need to understand this. So I pulled a David Foster Wallace and put them all in endnotes. And if you want to figure out like what Leo Strauss is, just flip to the back of it and you'll be like, wait, oh my God, I can't believe this one random German dude has a chokehold on most of conservative politics. I've never heard of him. And here's what he believes. That's interesting. Oh, okay. So that textual knowledge, I think will help a lot of people. And, and all of this is swinging, the polarization swinging so wildly. Do you think it'll ever, the United States will ever sort of, return back to some semblance of normalcy after this MAGA period? It could. It really depends on the information environment. Like, what is happening right now, and I'm covering this for um, uh, Puck right now, is that there are two different channels in which voters are receiving information that informs how they vote. And one of them is, like, mainstream, and one of them is a vast wide conservative network that is just like huge and fringy and has tiny little audiences but in the aggregate they are much bigger than like the readership of the new york times or the viewership of cnn and in order to keep our democracy together and this is my theory like that information environment has to be reconciled somehow i don't know what that looks like because this is only a theory that i've been working on for a year I really wish I had an answer. One day I would like to have an answer, but normalcy can really only come about when people agree on something. So yeah, that's my uh, profound insight. Thank you, Tina. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Wish we had more time, but uh I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the book. It's a, it's a fascinating read. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy talking about like, uh, it's good to be Vietnamese in public. <laughs> that's a, that's a very cool thing to, to, to say and to think, you know, I just uh, have never thought about that, but, but in your position and in your shoes and being exposed to the other, you know, to, to the white men and, and that world of, of, of where you come from, I'm sure it's a it's it's a a good feeling to to recognize yourself as a as a Vietnamese American. Yeah, it really does. This conversation made me like very happy. So thank you for that. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, 
to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trim. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.